Hello and welcome to the 17th Geopolitical Economy Hour, the show that examines the fast-changing political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. And today we are joined once again by the incomparable Pepe Escobar. Welcome back, Pepe. Hi, everybody. Great pleasure to be with you both. Great. So Pepe and Michael and I are going to discuss the apparently unending series of summits and read their tea leaves to see what they tell us about how the world is changing. And that summitry has been pretty exhausting. There was the fateful NATO summit in July, where much to his chagrin, President Zelensky failed to get even a timetable to get into NATO after having prostrated his country before NATO and having long ago so faithfully let NATO into Ukraine. And then there was a BRICS summit in Johannesburg in August, where the organization defied pessimistic predictions and admitted six new members. This was followed by the G20 in Delhi, hosted by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. President Putin attended the BRICS, uh, a BRICS meeting virtually, but both he and President Xi, who had attended the BRICS meeting personally, did not go to the G20. They left their uh, a foreign minister and prime minister to do so. However, then President Putin hosted the vitally important meeting of the Eastern Economic Forum that has been held annually since 2015 to showcase Russia's own pivot to Asia. Of, uh, uh, which was, of course, a friendly one, unlike uh, Obama's pivot to Asia, whose purpose was to, of course, escalate tensions with China. At that summit, which uh, barely rated any coverage in the Western media, President Putin not only underlined the absolute priority of Russia's own Far East and its development, but also Russia's relation with other Far Eastern economies, which are increasingly, of course, the dynamic center of the world economy as we have been talking over so many shows. Uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so, so and President Putin also announced that Russia was planning to follow its already uh, spectacular development of uh, hypersonic weapons, which had already caused a Sputnik moment in Washington, DC, with new weapons, apparently we are told, based on hitherto unused physical principles, using laser technology, ultrasonic te sonic technology, radio frequency, and whatnot. So this will uh, apparently also, according to President Putin, yield new principles of action in war. After this uh, eventful uh, Eastern Economic Forum came the G77 and plus China meeting in Havana, where China has restated its commitment to the development of the majority of humankind as the principle that should govern international relations. Um, and of course, now uh, at the moment, the world has is uh, the world is watching as the United Nations has its regular annual meeting in New York, where thanks to his waning popularity, both at home as well as abroad, President Biden seems to be wanting to propose democratic reforms for the United Nations, including the expansion of the United Nations Security Council. Now, the reason these summits have been so hectic and have felt like such a whirlwind of events is simply because each of them has been marking time with the accelerated tempo of change on the international plane. That is to say, the rapid shifts in the world order. And these are the changes that we want to examine in this in this conversation today. So, Pepe, I thought maybe it would be really great if you started us off because you were at 
the Eastern Economic Forum, and that's one of the least talked about of these summits. So why don't you start us off by telling us what your takeaway was from that? <laughs> to be frank, Radik and Michael, I should not be here now. I should be in Kamchatka Peninsula, you know, or the Sakhalin Islands. I, I, when I was at the airport flying back to Moscow, I was desperate because I was, I was looking at my options. And I said, oh, my God, everything is there. Blagoveshensk, which is the border of um, Russia and China in the Amur. Uh, the Altai Mountains, uh, the Kamchatka Peninsula, the Sakhalin Islands, Buryatia. And I said, oh, my God, and I have to fly back seven time zones to go back to Moscow and work. And I want to, okay, I want to drop everything and stay here. Especially because one of the days of, of the summit, I spent the whole afternoon going to all the stands of the different provinces and talking to the representatives over there. They had... Uh, very, very good businessmen, uh, startups, uh, official representatives. So you can go to the Buryatia stand, and in one hour, you will know everything about Buryatia, and you have an invitation to go to Buryatia to see the development of the province. When I visited the Tatarstan stand, they gave me an official investor's guide in Tatarstan, which I'm going to start distributing to everybody, including you guys. You know why? Because the, the, the summit uh, of the BRICS next year is going to be in Kazan, which is in Tatarstan. So when you see all that live in front of you and you talk to the people from the provinces and you see how uh, it's this uh, public-private uh, partnership in terms of sustainable development in all these gigantic areas, you know, like 3 million square kilometers or so, then starts dawning on you that, well, this is Asia-Pacific on the move, really. And the even more outstanding um, factor is that, for instance, for Japanese, for Koreans, for other Asians, when they arrive in Vladivostok, they say, ah, this is the European capital of Asia. In their minds, Vladivostok is Europe. But the minute I arrived in Vladivostok, I said, no, I am in Asia. Because, well, I lived in Asia since the 90s, the mid-90s. So for me, Vladivostok was like if I was in a Chinese city or, or somewhere in Southeast Asia. Of course, a slightly different climate. You see Koreans, Japanese, the locals over there, and you feel that you are in Asia. And the first restaurant where I had breakfast was the Singapura restaurant. And I thought I was in Singapore eating Singaporean food. You know, so, but it's fascinating that, to see the contrast and, of course, to see in practice what Putin said in the beginning and at the end of his address to the plenary session of the, of the Eastern Economic uh, Summit. The Far East is going to be the strategic priority of Russia until the end of the century. So this means this is extremely serious. Uh, this pivot to the East, in fact, started in 2012. Uh, before 2012, Vladivostok was a little bit uh, left, uh, you know, was a backwater, in fact. Then what did they do? They built those uh, outstanding suspension bridges. So now the circulation, different areas of Vladivostok is much easier. The city started to expand. They built an absolutely outstanding federal university 
we had the summit at the campus of the university. I was comparing it to universities in Europe, and it's a joke. If you compare to anything in France, in Germany, in UK, or in Italy, compared to this federal university, the dormitories, you know, the, the green expenses in front of a bay, uh, you know, departments hyper well-staffed, lots of funds. And it's, and it's literally seven time zones east of Moscow. So you are really deep into Asia, in Russian Asia, in Asia Pacific, and if anybody mentions uh, uh, the term called uh, Indo-Pacific, nobody will know what it means because it means absolutely nothing. These are the people who actually live in Asia Pacific. And in terms of the all the provinces in the east, east of the Urals, southern Siberia, uh, and the far, far east, like, for instance, the Kamchatka Peninsula or Buryatia, which is closer to the... It, it's amazing that the pace of development and the pace of innovation is outstanding. Uh, I was talking, for instance, with Chinese scholars. There was a huge Chinese delegation and some excellent scholars like Wang Wen from uh, uh, Renmin University in China. And for, for them, it's a completely different pers Chinese perspective in terms of this is great, this is fantastic, but they need infrastructure badly. Wang Wang said that at least 10 times in his different panels, and it's true. And then I was checking with the locals. They said, ah, he's absolutely right. Do you know that between Vladivostok here and Khabarovsk, which is the second most important city in the Far East, there's not a highway? And, uh, you know, the road absolutely sucks. And this is something that Chinese can build in six months easily. On the other hand, we have already an expanding Vladivostok airport. You know, uh, they're going to build air airports in all these other areas as well. There are even a small airport in the Kamchatka Peninsula, uh, un literally under the volcano, to <laughs> reminding us of Malcolm Lorry. And, uh, and, and, you, and you can see how all, all these um, development projects are in sync. And of course, the Chinese, when they look at all around, they said, yes, we're going to invest here big, big time. In fact, Putin's address, which was very detailed in numbers, uh, in, especially in numbers and in terms of actual investment, the Chinese were looking around and said, OK, now we're going to come in full force. And when I was talking to Wang Wenda, among others, he said, yes, from now on, expect an avalanche of Chinese investment in the whole Far East. And then right in the middle of all this uh, frantic action, we got the train kept a rolling episode of our friend Kim Jong-un. And every, the day that we knew that the train had left Pyongyang and he was actually crossing the border. Uh, many of you maybe don't know that the border between Russia and North Korea is only 140 kilometers away from Vladivostok. So it's literally around the corner. So everybody at the foreign literally stopped and said, wow, Kim Jong-un is coming here. No. In fact, uh, a little more drama. He went to another city and then he went to other parts of Primorsky Krai and he came back to Vladivostok and he visited the Federal University when we had all left. So obviously there was a, a security element to all that, right? But the fact, the timing of Kim Jong-il arriving at Primorsky Krai, this whole region, and Putin uh, also in his speech saying that uh, 
yes, the relations with North Korea are very, very important. And basically hinting that the geoeconomic integration of North Korea to the larger, greater Eurasia partnership now is on. And this, in terms of timing and in terms of a mega announcement, it couldn't, it couldn't go bigger than that. Because on, yes. on one side, we have uh, that absolutely ridiculous summit with uh, Biden and uh, his uh, South Korean and Japanese vassals. And on the other side, we have a de facto geoeconomic, geopolitical and military, I wouldn't say alliance, but uh, let's say entente cordiale, as the French would detail, between China, Russia and North Korea, the DPRK. And in one of the columns that I wrote about it, in fact, the second one that I wrote for Sputnik was published by Sputnik early this week. I tell the backstory of how Putin ended up seducing Kim Jong-un. Because I don't know if many of you remember, uh, immediately uh, the first two years of Xi Jinping, there was an enormous animosity between uh, Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping. And the Chinese didn't know how to control their ally. Let's put it this way. Guess who was the middleman? And guess who ended up having this diplomatic coup, which is strategic coup as well, that lasted, I would say, practically 10 years or so. Putin, once again. And it took him 10 years to get uh, Kim's uh, trust, to bring Kim closer to Xi, and to bring this... Uh, triad to become a geoeconomic and geopolitical reality. So imagine all that happening seven time zones east of Moscow, and you can imagine how the Western media treated it, all that. It didn't exist. To start with, uh, Michael and, and Radika, there were no Westerners at this forum. I was probably one of the very, very, very few, and my French friends who one of them hosts a show on RT, he told me, look, I found four French people here. And that's it. And nobody else. No Germans, no Americans, no Canadians, nobody. No Westerners at all. And it's one of the most important gatherings of this millennium, I would say. Setting the tone for this strategic pivoting by Russia to the Far East and this geoeconomic and geopolitical union with North Korea. So this is a the very, very short story of what happened in Vladivostok, guys. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. And I just wanted to say, you know, uh, you said that in the Western press, the uh, summit between uh, President Putin and uh, Kim Jong-un was largely ignored. But I noted that at least one story referred to the uh, Russia's alliances on the one hand with countries like Iran and on the other hand with uh, countries like um well, like 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 um, like North Korea as an yeah. as an alliance of uh, essentially dictators or dictators, or, or, is yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so you know, th there's always a way of uh, of of uh, portraying this in a negative light, you know. But but I, I I by the way, I completely agree with you. Not only are you seeing that, of course, I mean, East Asia has been essentially a, a far more dynamic hub 
of the world economy for a long time. And of course, today, it in many ways, it represents a far more weighty part of the world economy. Because if you just take G GDP figures, in any case, it is catching up to Western countries. But if you factor in the fact that, you know, much of the GDP uh, uh, that is generated in the Western countries is actually not manufacturing or production of any sort, it's merely the smoke and mirrors of financial GDP. Actually, this is the dynamic center of the world's productive economy. Exactly. DPRK exactly. is a central part of this productive economy. It's astonishing, you know, when you look at pictures of where Korea was uh, when the after, you know, at the end of the war with hardly a building standing. I mean, it is said that American mm -hmm. pilots towards the end of the war were complaining that they had nothing left to bomb because they had already been given orders that buildings above you know, I don't know, a, a, a couple of dozen feet uh, of height should be bombed. Well, Pyongyang was completely destroyed. Huh? It was destroyed. And now you see the the ability of the Koreans to produce what they are producing to more or less run the economy in the way that ha and defend themselves. I think it's really amazing. And I think that uh, Putin, if it is indeed, as you say, President Putin, who has made, uh, you know, sort of brought uh, uh, North Korea sort of back into the to sort of full membership of this very productively dynamic part of the world. I have to say that the United States attempts to try to, you know, create uh, essentially to to perpetuate the vassalage of Japan and South Korea is mm -hmm. probably not going to work very well. Uh, the fact of the matter is that already we know that Japan throughout this Korean conflict has continued to maintain energy cooperation with Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. And we know also that South Korea, although it may not have as much investment with Russia, South Korea will be extremely inconvenienced if tensions with China rise, which they will rise because President Biden has nowhere else to take it. So, you know, for all these reasons, I, I, I think your observations are spot on. And I wish we, I could have been there as well, because I have no doubt that it's and, and of course, the other part of the Eastern Economic Forum is that it's also about developing the East of, of Russia. Yeah. So in, yeah. in, in a certain sense, actually, you know, this is kind of like Russia's own version of a BRI, because the Belt and Road Initiative for China is about developing, of course, infrastructure and so on in the world as a whole. But it is also about developing China's less developed West. And this is about Russia developing its less developed East. East. So just one thing, uh, if you allow me two minutes, Radhika and Michael. Sure. Uh, very, very important. There were extremely important delegations from all over Asia at the forum. For instance, there was Laos, uh, Vietnam, the Philippines, and Myanmar. They had very, very important delegations, and they were um, intervening in some of the major panels as well. Indians. Very important Indian delegation. Chinese, obviously. So uh, major players from Southeast Asia were there. And this points to uh, another diplomatic success by the Russians, which is their getting relationship between the Eurasia Economic Union and, the, and ASEAN closer and closer. So soon we're going to have even more free trade agreements between the EAEU and ASEAN. They already have with Vietnam, for instance. They, they have with Myanmar. Soon they may have, next year they could have it with Indonesia as well. There were Indonesians uh, in, uh, in Vladivostok as well. So this was very, very important. And, and to see 
the Asians together with the Russians discussing economic integration. This is something obvious cannot even be commented in the West because they don't even know what it means. Absolutely. And in, in fact, that reminds me of something else, which is that, you know, uh, back in the spring, I was uh, at a conference uh, at the higher economics uh, school, which is a it was originally of Moscow's most neoliberal university. Higher School of Economics. Higher School they're, of they're, Economics. They're fantastic. Oh, yes. And yeah. uh, HSE. And the fact of the matter is that at this conference, uh, prominent Russian intellectuals like Dmitry Trenin, who had been the head of the Carnegie Endowment in Moscow, exactly. uh, Sergei Karaganov, who is one of the founders of the Valdai Club. These were the people who were saying that, you know, the days when Russia looked to ally with the West are over. Russia are will over. never return. To, they are over. Russia will never return to those days. And then towards the end, Karaganov even said, whoever, in, in any case, whoever wants to ally with the West, it's boring. The real excitement is in Asia. So in that sense, I think that, you know, absolutely, I think that this this is, and, 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 and this new world majority that is forming, the Russians have decided to call the grouping that they are part of, which is basically everybody other than the West and perhaps, and, and Japan, um, mm. this uh, grouping, you know, the West, South, uh, Japan, uh, Singapore, South Korea, etc. This grouping, they call the world majority. And certainly, what, one of the things we've been seeing in all these summits is the onward march of the world majority. And, and the second thing is that, you know, I said earlier that the United States is going to find it very difficult to keep this group, the, its own alliances together. It's been trying to woo India away from this alliance on the grounds that India is a democracy. But with the recent developments where uh, uh, the Canada has accused India of uh, essentially assassinating a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, I think that this pretends that uh, that this is an alliance of democracies is not going to, you know, stand up to much scrutiny. Stand up, yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah, Michael, did you want to add anything? Well, uh, my thought is really on how Europe's economies are falling apart, not mm -hmm. on, uh, uh, and you're talking about how the rest of the world is uh, building it's up. So uh, obviously the implication is that Europe is being uh, left out. Uh, and uh, Angelina Borbach, I guess, Baerbach said just last week, uh, if you trade with Russia, it's dependency. If you trade uh, on their oil, if you trade with America, it's not uh, dependency. Uh, that's freedom. Uh, and we have to avoid treaty, uh, uh, not uh, trade with the uh, uh, people who, as Pepe said, uh, autocrats. autocrats. Uh, everybody yes. who's uh, not trying to uh, overthrow and interrupt with this pro prospect is called an autocrat. Because what that means is that uh, the public sector is taking a major role uh, in all of this infrastructure. It's not it's not being privatized in this road that uh, Pepe mentioned from Vladivostok. If they build it, it's not going to be a toll road, probably not like uh, New Jersey. Not a toll uh, road, exactly. <laughs> that'll be financed by American capital uh, that will all be a. Uh, uh, be paid uh, very rapidly. So we're dealing really not only with a ge geographic split, but with a split of uh, uh, economic structures, uh, a mixed uh, public-private economy, not like the Western public-private uh, uh, 
partnership, which uh, the you socialize uh, uh, the losses and uh, privatize the profits, but something where uh, the aim is really not to make a profit, but to make the overall uh, economy grow. That's that's the basic uh, uh, principle uh, in all this. And the only thing I can say now that you're talking about how the uh, the West has ignored uh, what you're doing, uh, the uh, there's a reciprocal. Uh, ignorance there uh, by the East. Uh, yesterday, the United Nations uh, opened, and naturally, I watched the 6.30 News, uh, and the 6.30 News had a split screen. Uh, on the one hand, there was uh, uh, Ukraine's President Yelensky giving a speech, and on the other was a stock footage of the General Assembly, you know, everybody there, uh, you know, everybody in their seats, uh, and uh, it was uh, the boring speech. But then when it was off, I thought, well, that's only two minutes. Let me look at the internet and see what happened. And they actually had a picture of the General Assembly while Zelensky was speaking, and it was almost entirely empty. Every uh, there was uh, uh, the uh, global majority had walked out, except I think there was an African delegation who were talking among themselves and laughing while uh, uh, Zelensky was speaking. And uh, so you have uh, really a uh, th there are two different worlds, and they. Uh, they don't seem to be mixing, except for the extent that the United States can try to come in and slow down the whole process and try to prevent uh, uh, prevent the clock from moving. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that we are going to see is already you are beginning to see protests in Europe emerging against the kind of economic devastation that the war is causing. Poland is now threatening to uh, stop backing Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, the uh, European at the European level, the sort of uh, uh, unity that the United States keeps trumpeting is going to break down. But the funny thing is that I think we are going to watch a real kind of really an odd sort of unfolding because it's more and more become clear to me that President Biden, since he's running for re-election, God only knows why he's running for re-election, because um, this is this seems to be increasingly unlikely that he will win. But nevertheless, um, since he's running for re-election, the last thing he wants in the world is for there for him to have to declare that he was defeated in Ukraine. So that is why they will keep funding the war in Ukraine. They'll keep saying, you know, we are stand by Ukraine, etc. In for domestic political reasons, even though essentially, as far as I can tell, the West has lost in Ukraine. But they'll keep up the pretense that they might yet win until after the election, which means that for the next year and a bit, this is what we are going to see, uh, uh, you know, coming from the United States. But that is precisely the time period in which both the elites and the ordinary people of Europe may begin to say, OK, the cost is too great. You know, we've got to stop this war. Um, uh, and 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 so on. Yeah, Michael, please go ahead. Yeah, I I, I do want to say something about Europe. Then uh, you can you can see what uh, the effect of the war is on the sanctions uh, against Germany. Uh, what was happening before the war before 2022 was uh, Germany was supporting the euro's exchange rate. Uh, and it was German industrial exports. And what it was doing, it was producing uh, these industrial goods by importing gas uh, and energy from Europe. Uh, and it was paying for them by exporting automobiles and industrial products. So Germany and the EU balance of payments with uh, Russia was uh, essentially, the, they weren't running a deficit. 
uh, it was all in balance and uh, the euro was uh, stabilized because uh, there wasn't outward pressure. But now that the sanctions have become, uh, the, the, what you call the Ukraine war is really the US-NATO war the U.S. war against NATO to absorb it into the U.S. economy. So look at what's happening now. Uh, not only is uh, Europe being told to, uh, to increase, to replenish all of the arms that have been destroyed, and that's about 2% of GDP, Europe will now have to spend about 3% of its GDP on replenishing the arms, not, uh, uh, not from uh, Russia or China, but from the United States. That means that uh, not only will the budget deficit uh, not permit any more domestic spending to uh, help pull Europe out of the depression, but uh, it's going to be a balance of payments uh, outflow to the United States, while the United, while Europe and especially Germany buy U.S. Uh, gas uh, and uh, other, uh, as well as arms from uh, the United States. Well, what this means is that uh, there's no reciprocity there. The United States is not going to do uh, uh, what Russia did and turn around and buy uh, German and other European industrial exports uh, because the United States is protectionist. So it's going to be a one-way payment instead of a balanced trade from the Euro uh, to uh, to the United States. And I did an interview with a German uh, press yesterday, and uh, the belief now is that the euro is going to go down uh, right through the dollar to 90 cents, maybe mm -hmm. 85 cents in the next few years. Now imagine what this is going to do. The euro's uh, balance of payments deficit is going to raise uh, prices because prices are set internationally for ro all raw materials, for imports, uh, it's going to make the cost of living higher. While uh, the government, uh, Baerbock said she doesn't care what the voters say, she has to make the word safe for democracy, which means <laughs> autocracy and the old, you know, pre-Orwellian uh, doublespeak. Uh, and uh, th this means there's already large-scale unemployment there. And where the German, uh, uh, Germany is going to end up looking like Latvia and Estonia. Where are the German workers going to move? They can't move to the United States uh, uh, b because that would be competing with American labor and the United States has you know, set up its barriers. Uh, is it going to move to Russia, China, Kazakhstan? Uh, who knows what it's going to do? But this, uh, the, uh, the United States has lost Europe. And, uh, and as you say, uh, Asia has turned its back on Europe. Nothing, Europe has nothing to offer uh, except subservience to the United States. So uh, you can just uh, see that this whole part of the world that was the center has now fallen off, fallen off uh, the edge. It's the, the contrast of uh, your perfect diagnostic, Michael. You, you, you explained you, you explained the European malaise in five minutes. And when you compare to what they are discussing in in China, in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and in Vladivostok, for that matter. For instance, there were panels in Vladivostok about relationship between BRICS and the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, there's a more or less a consensus that sooner or later they have to get sit at the same table and start discussing, among others, uh, a new payment a settlement system. Uh, in one of the panels that I, I had the honor to be part with, there were only heavyweights, in fact, including uh, one of the best Russian economists, Andrei Klepash. He works for uh, VAB Bank. 
there was uh, people from the Duma as well. Glaziev, Sergei Glaziev intervened online. His deputy, his his number his number two, Dmitry Mityaev, was also part of the panel. And of course, um, uh, Klepash came, came up with a very wonderful definition. He says that uh, a currency, by definition, has to be liquid and stable, like vodka. So at the moment, we're not there yet in terms of the the, the new um, uh, Eurasia. Uh, currency which is being debated especially here it's uh, it's one of the key debates everywhere but i have a question for both of you because this question uh, came up in vladivostok and it's a little bit of a rage here as well which is involves the bank of international settlements and the imf the, nothing can be done by the BRICS as long as the IMF continues to dictate, as Michael explains very well, all over the world, uh, the terms of their collaboration with the Global South, and uh, what the possibility, and considering the fact that all the central banks of the BRICS countries are part of the Bank of International Systems. So uh, I know that you that you can explain this in two, one or two minutes. And I, I'm sure the audience will be very, very interested. And also an extra problem. The fact that the new development bank, the BRICS bank, basically, essentially, as Glaziev has been saying all the time, it's still dollarized. And how are they going to escape from the fact that they are dollarized? This is something that I... If I have the chance, I'll like to a question that I'll like to pose in China next month. But for the moment, uh, the discussion here is raging about all this. Uh, sure. Did you want to go first, Michael, or shall I? There's a, there's a real problem. And uh, last time we talked, uh, I said, well, before there's a, a, a formal currency which needs governments uh, all to get together, uh, they're going to have to hold each other's. Uh, each other's currency for a while with currency swaps. But the Financial Times just had a very interesting article yesterday about Russian oil, uh, Russian oil sales of oil to India. Russia's been selling its oil to Europe by way of India. And uh, the Europeans pretend that uh, this is not sanctioned oil because it's Indian oil from, as we all know, India's vast uh, oil wells are reserved. <laughs> but it turns out that, that India pays uh, Russia in uh, its own currency uh, that is unconvertible. They're blocked currency, just like the German exactly. blocked marks of the 1920s. Uh, the Indian rupees that have paid Russia can only be spent on imports from India. And this is not a free market in currency. This is not a stable. What on earth is Russia going to do with all this huge mass of rupees that can only be spent on buying rupian exports? Uh, exactly. This is something uh, that uh, cannot last a long time. And the United States, uh, in, uh, recently in visiting India, has jumped on this and said, look, uh, this is all going to end. You'd better throw in your lot with us and block the Belt and Road. Uh, just, uh, you know, remember you're fighting China uh, up in, uh, up in uh, near uh, uh, Tibet uh, in the Himalayas. Uh, you really have to uh, uh, join uh, NATO, uh, uh, basically. And uh, so that is the subterranean, that, that's the pressure. And the United States, uh, having uh, uh, mounted a coup in Pakistan last year, is saying the same thing to Pakistan. Don't let the Chinese pipeline go through Pakistan. Uh, what you want is for uh, uh, the, uh, the oil to uh, be from 
uh, a port to a ship to a railroad to a port to a ship uh, back to another railroad. I mean, uh, this uh, crazy uh, line that the United States has tried to get to re uh, is an alternative to the uh, Belt and Road. This is the uh, this is the issue that the United States is trying to do to interrupt uh, this this whole continuity. Uh, and that's going to be the political fight that I think unfolds during the next uh, 12 months. You know, that's really an interesting point. And, and I want to come back to that. But first, let me just answer the Pepe's original question. Uh, because you see, uh, Pepe, the, the two uh, institutions that you mentioned are quite different, right? So the Bank yeah, of International yeah. Settlements is essentially like an international club of in, of central banks, which is fine. I mean, you know, they, it cannot impose anything. The IMF, on the other hand, can only impose its writ to mm -hmm. the extent that countries borrow from it. And it's really interesting to look at history from this point of view. You know, uh, there were throughout the 1980s and 1990s, there were numerous complaints about the way in which the IMF treats third world countries, developing countries. And in those days, there was a debt crisis pervaded the third world. So you got to see that. Uh, however, and, and of course, these complaints were mounting. But then when people saw the manner in which the IMF intervened in South Korea after the 1997-1998 East Asian Thailand financial crisis. I was there. I saw, well, yeah. I, I saw it firsthand. Exactly. Yeah. So, so please add to this. But let me just say, when people saw the way in which the IMF intervened in Korea, treating it as though it was just another... A third world country essentially creating an opportunity for American corporations to buy Korean uh, 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 firms at knockdown prices and such like things. People really realize how bad it is. And in fact, since that time, the IMF's portfolio began to shrink. Uh, it had fewer and fewer people, uh, countries were borrowing from it. And the other thing as well is that uh, once the United States at that time started, uh, 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 you know, it's it's a low interest rate policy in order to try to keep the housing bubble going and, and, and so on. This low interest rate policy sent a lot of capital searching for returns abroad so that private lending to third world countries increased. So, you know, people were not, you know, countries were not borrowing. So the IMF had almost become irrelevant until then the 2008 crisis happened and then it got more borrowers. But to this day, the IMF is not really very popular among third world governments. So I would say that in order to escape from the clutches of the IMF, the important thing is for countries to create alternative sources of finance. China is taking mm -hmm. a lead in this, but I would say that we are still at that liminal phase where this is not sufficient to replace the IMF. But I think that uh, BRICS countries should probably be thinking hard about, on the one hand, decreasing the need to borrow, particularly the need to borrow in dollars. And mm -hmm. then secondly, uh, 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 to the extent possible, to increase the available capital for lending in other currencies. Michael, I think you wanted to say something. Yeah, so I'll uh, the, the IMF is basically a war lender in two uh, sense. It, 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 its biggest uh, client recently was uh, uh, Ukraine, of course, but now Pakistan too. Pakistan mm -hmm. made a deal with the United States last month. So in the IMF promised to give it a loan to buy American arms. So the IMS has now become the major uh, funder of countries purchasing American arms. It's a branch of the American military-industrial complex. And, of course, the other war is class war. 
uh, of uh, the uh, the one percent uh, of uh, uh, the, the the dictators in uh, Argentina and other countries uh, against the ninety nine percent in their country, and the uh, the IMF is uh, uh, supported capital flight from these countries. Now, the problem that the BRICS have is not simply avoiding the IMF. What? Uh, how on earth can they afford? to uh, make their public investment in infrastructure and roads and the things we've been talking about if they have to pay the existing backlog of uh, uh, foreign dollarized debt that has been run up under IMF sponsorship saying uh, this is all uh, how the economy works. It's not how the economy works. The IMF has sponsored junk economics and the identical balance of payment theory that uh, bankrupted uh, Germany and Europe in the 1920s. Uh, the idea that you can pay any amount of foreign debt if you just pay your labor less. And uh, the idea of the BRICS countries is to raise living standards. Uh, for one thing, if you raise living standards, labor is more productive. If you pay for their education, you feed them well, you keep them in good health, they're going to be more productive. The opposite of what the IMF says. So if you're going to have a, a philosophy that's the opposite of the neo, uh, the old neo-colonial financial imperialism, you, you have to make the brick from, break from the West, not only trading among yourselves, but uh, saying uh, we're uh, going to have a moratorium on foreign debt. The moratorium may last forever, just like in 1931, the uh, Bank for International Settlements organized the moratorium on German reparations and inter-allied debt because they said, if these debts are paid, you will have uh, chronic depression in, in throughout Europe uh, well, and the United States. So it was, uh, uh, the, uh, the debts couldn't be paid. You need a new 1931 today. And uh, the BRICS countries, uh, BRICS Plus can say, uh, we, we were given bad advice and we weren't in control because uh, the leaders of our countries who signed these promissory notes were installed by uh, US interference and meddling in our economy. Uh, and uh, we're do just as uh, Central Africa is freeing itself from the legacy of French colonialism and taking its own natural resources uh, under its control, we're, t we're taking our resources under our control. Uh, forget the debts, you can bring it up all you want in future decades, but we're not going to pay for now because we can't pay. And we're not going to sacrifice our lives and our economies uh, for the legacy of colonialism, uh, which mm -hmm. would simply maintain the whole purpose of colonialism, which is control and extracting the economic surplus from the global majority. And if you allow you me, want to say something, yeah. One, no, one minute, very briefly, for both of you. Uh, we still have an enormous practical problem which is something that was not really discussed during the BRICS summit. And in Vladivostok, some of the economists alluded to it, but we, we didn't have time to get into detail. The fact, how are we going to de-dollarize the BRICS bank, the new development bank? This is something that Dilma Rousseff, former Brazilian president, now president of the NDB, she said that a few months ago, and she said that during the BRICS summit. Ah, our goal is to have 30% of our loans bypassing the dollar uh, in the next few years. But this is completely no. nuts. It should be like 70 or 80% now. And you're going to wait for 30% next year or in two years? So this means that it's, a, it's still a completely dollarized bank. What to do? 
Raja right. and um, Michael. Well, uh, well, let, if, 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 let, let me start. So, so I would I would say that the key thing that uh, we have to understand is that the new development bank is not where we should look if we are looking at the processes of de-dollarization. I agree mm. that it remains within the spell of the IMF and the World Bank and so on. I think to look for de-dollarization, I think we need to look at really the China-centered institutions. There is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. There is all the Chinese, major Chinese banks are lending across the, uh, around the world internationally. And I think that's where we have to look, not necessarily at uh, uh, the new development bank, which is small by comparison to this. It represents the, so, you know, these processes, you know, we are all uh, in a certain sense, I think when we are talking about de-dollarization and these alternatives, if we talk about it in terms of breaks, I think we're doing two things that are wrong. Number one, we are overestimating the cooperation between them. The BRICS still includes India, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and Brazil and South Africa, whose commitment to a, a, a to a, a anti-dollar world is actually not as firm as you might imagine. So I think that this is going exactly. to be a drag. However, as you rightly pointed out, the fact that India and China, sorry, uh, the fact that China and Russia are now in very close alliance recently, uh, this was further underlined by, by, you know, China essentially standing by Russia in a number of different ways. So I would say that this is the alliance we have to look at. That is the main driver. I think the other countries, you know, particularly say, take a country like India that I know most about, I think other countries are going to, you know, if we had, for example, a progressive government in New Delhi, I think the process will accelerate much more. Uh, you know, just as in Brazil, Brazil's case, under Bolsonaro, things were kind of slow vis-a-vis -vis the BRICS, but now that Lula is back, you know, we will have a, probably an acceleration, but, you know, it's going to be a long process that economies will have to be transformed yeah. and so on, right? So, so, uh, so in that sense, I think we have to look at towards China in particular. Uh, but I think also that the other thing we have to be prepared for, because this is what Michael and I have been talking about for a long time, which is that there are two elements to the de-dollarization process. One is the availability of alternatives, but the other is the internal contradictions of the dollar system itself. And I think mm -hmm. that it's quite possible that the internal contradictions of the dollar system might reach a critical point, may reach the implosion point before the rest of the world is prepared with the alternatives on the, the scale that they are necessary, mm -hmm. which is why we keep harping about the internal contradictions of the dollar system. But Michael, I know you want to come in, so go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, you, you, uh, you said the important point. Uh, uh, the, we're having instability all, all over and all the countries can do is remove themselves from the instability and the problem is not using the dollars it's paying the legacy the dollar debt it's what they're paying for in dollars uh these the dollars are not going to be used for trade most dollars by uh, the global majority are made to pay debt and the debt was taken on by their ruling class instead of taxing uh the uh the, the ruling class uh, they've dismantled government they've privatized the, their infrastructure the imf and the world bank and the us of press have pushed them into a neoliberal policy of selling off their infrastructure of doing the exact opposite of what uh, uh pepe described china and russia doing now building mm -hmm. in public infrastructure and providing it at a as low a cost as possible 
to lower the cost of living, to uh, lower the cost of doing business and make economies uh, more competitive. So uh, if you're going to have a conflict between two economic systems, you don't want to keep uh, paying the legacy of the old economic system that led you into debt in the first place. Uh, so if you don't de-dollarize the debt, uh, you have a problem. If you only use dollars for trading, uh, well, you could use that for balance of payments deficits with the United States. But what do the United States have to sell other countries? To sell, it's exactly. Nothing. It doesn't, the U.S. can only export arms now and uh, grain uh, and still food. But uh, the, global, the global majority now is doing what Russia is doing. It's growing its own food to become independent of reliance on America's ability to turn off the uh, uh, spigots and, uh, you, and weaponize uh, trade. The United States accuses the BRICS and Russia of potentially weaponizing trade, but only the United States has weaponized its trade. No other country has done that. That's uh, what you call, psych psychotherapists call projection. Uh, Projection. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, 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 they need to broaden the discussion and quite explicitly say, we're talking about the use of currency, not primarily to uh, pay for trade, but to pay uh, debts. And most debts are the product of neocolonialism in the past. And uh, we're breaking from neocolonialism and its legacy. Uh, and you can treat these as odious debts. That's, and, that is what will have to become the focus of these discussions. May, may I have one quick question for both of you? Absolutely. The last one, yes. maybe. Uh, would, would, would it be possible for the, not only for the BRICS, but for the global majority to use a system that is called M-Bridge, which is being used at the moment by the Thais and the... Um, and the Emirates, for instance. It's very, very interesting. The Thais are buying oil from the Emirates. So from they who? use a blockchain. They Sorry, use from a whom blockchain. are they buying oils? Sorry? From whom are, from whom are the Thais buying oil? Uh, the Emirates. The Emirates. The Emirates, right. Exactly. right. Emirates, so it's yes. very interesting. It's a blockchain mechanism. The Thais, they pay with the knee bat. And the Emirates, they receive in a e dirham. It's fantastic. It's a blockchain. Do you think that this could be applied all over for transactions among the global majority as a whole? Could that be the way towards uh, an alternative payment system on a global scale? That's exactly what happened in the 1930s and 1940s, in the 50s. And when I first went to work at Chase Manhattan Bank uh, for balance of payments, it was block currencies were still being used into the early 60s. That's exactly how the world solved the problem after the uh, German reparations and inter-ally debt crisis. So yes, that's the natural evolution that it'll take. Somehow people have left out of account uh, this whole discussion. All of these things and the economic principles were discussed in the 20s and Keynes uh, completely demolished uh, uh, the right-wing uh, uh, doctrine, the von Misian doctrine that the uh, IMF has been producing uh, today. Uh, so I think what's needed is uh, a to reintroduce these discussions of what how the problem was resolved in the 20s and 30s. That's what my te my textbook on trade development and foreign debt is all about. It's the history of this international financial discussion. Uh, but I think it's, Michael, it's all you're up doing, there. speaking of something else, right? You refer to blocked currencies. 
Yes, they, they, and they were blocked. These were blocked currencies. They could, uh, like, the United States accused Germany of having accordion marks, marks that could only be spent be spent on buying German accordions. Uh, I mean, you can block them down to uh, very great detail. Uh, and uh, uh, most more and more countries, especially Latin America, were developing it. And when you'd look at the IMF. Uh, uh, international financial statistics that came out every month, a big publication, you'd have the exchange rate, uh, trade, investment, you'd have the, the different, different exchange rates all listed. I so, think what yes, you're referring to, yes. I think what you're referring to is the block currency in the sense of currencies that circulated in a regional block. For example, there was the sterling block. There would have been a mark block, etc., no. etc. No, they could only be used to buy particular things uh, in this country. Uh, ah, in other okay. words, any so country could buy. America could uh, sell its uh, 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 German marks to Argentina. They could buy its accordions from, uh, uh, right. from uh, okay. Germany. No, no, no. Okay, so there were currencies that were essentially earmarked for buying only earmarked. certain products. Earmarked. That's fine. But I think that, Pepe, your question was really about blockchain currency and, yes, you know, these electronic definitely. currencies. And I think that the answer to that is, I mean, it's a really interesting question. First of all, uh, there is a there's a lot of confusion around the terms that are used. So people take people talk about digital currencies. They assume that everybody's talking about Bitcoin and uh, and such things. Bitcoin is not a currency. Bitcoin is an asset. So we were going to leave yeah. that aside, right? Now, however, it is also true that many central banks are talking about introducing e currencies. Uh, and there's all this discussion around central bank digital currencies. And that is and, and that is, of course, being opposed by the private sector, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere as well by private banking and financial interests. Because, of course, the moment you have a central bank digital currency, you will eliminate the need for private banking. Because essentially everybody will have an account with the central bank and the central bank can centralize lending and, 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 and repayments and all these sorts of things. So there is a huge private sector. And of course, all of this is being couched in terms of how, oh my goodness, you're going to let the state have access to all your information, etc. But of course, at the moment, private corporations have access to all our information and nobody exactly. says go about yeah. it. So, but to come back to the repayment systems, international payment systems and the use of e-currencies, I would say that from my, from my understanding, this will make it easier. So, you know, if the Thais and the Emirates want to trade with one another, of course, mm -hmm. the payment will is a lot easier if you use these digital currencies and so on. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, yeah, so, 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 so you can do that and you can also decentralize the use of the incoming resources and all these sorts of things. However, this will not solve the problem that Michael was referring to earlier when he said that, you know, Russia is sitting on piles of rupees that it doesn't know what to do with. So mm -hmm. the solution to that problem really is that, you know, in the process of de-dollarization, in the process of uh, essentially moving away from the junk economics of the Western world, what all countries are going to have to do is really to focus on developing their economy, including, yeah. if necessary, by essentially socializing them, introducing higher and higher elements of socialism in it, and essentially controlling the prerogatives of private capital. So because if this is not done, then you will not solve the problem of imbalances. The imbalances ultimately occur because, you know, 
countries don't don't have enough to you know competitive exports so how are you going to acquire competitive exports how can india do that only by essentially uh, pursuing development in the only way that is successful namely state directed development in which private capital is subordinated to the needs of the economy as a whole etc etc and i think that all of that is going to take a bit of time it's not going to happen overnight and every so often you know, like Argentina has, has elected a, a government just after being admitted into the BRICS. Argentina has elected a government that promises to dollarize its economy. Exactly. So these hiccups will happen. But I would say that the broader uh, uh, push of history is away from the West and away from capitalism and towards the forms of economic forms we are talking about. But Michael, I know you want to say something, so please go ahead. No, you made uh, the good point that you made a good oh, point. Oh, sorry. I, I thought you said no. you wanted to speak. So, okay. No, I no that's not. fine. I mean, I, I think maybe we should just have one last round of final remarks because we're nearly up to an hour. So, uh, maybe Pepe will start with you. Wow. Uh, well, my head is still, <laughs> my head is still in Vladivostok <laughs> and the Far East. And, um, uh, and ne next month, I'll be back in Asia. So I I'm doing a loop at the moment, which is quite instructive. It's Russia, the Far East, and then next month, I'll be in Southeast Asia and hopefully China as well and finish in Hong Kong, my, 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 where I used to live. And after these three months, you have a pretty good idea of how this, pa this part of the planet is moving and interacting. And especially, don't forget, next month is the Belt and Road Summit in Beijing. So this means they're going to launch uh, Belt and Road uh, 2.0. They're yes. going to probably uh, announce uh, some projects and announce that some uh, important projects are going to be finished soon, uh, which is something that the West doesn't understand. The Belt and Road is an open work of art or trade or connectivity uh, it, this is this is something inadmissible for western thinking binary western thinking it's open uh, it's subject to um uh, improvements uh a lot deng xiaoping you know crossing the river or filling the stones you can change a, a project mm -hmm. or you can improve a project or you can even drop a project or you can bring uh, more local workers instead of uh, more Chinese workers. And the Chinese are learning to do this. Since uh, uh, the Belt and Road was announced 10 years ago, first in Astana and then in Jakarta, they are refining the process. And I'm very, very worried personally about the China-Pakistan economic corridor after what happened, after the coup against Imran Khan, after the fact that the IMF is running the country again. And considering the fact that this um, dynasty in power is one of the worst in the history of the whole of Southeast Asia, in fact, these people, uh, they are gangsters, the absolute gangsters and comprador elites, a classic comprador elites. But uh, uh, maybe next month we will know what the Chinese are telling these people in power at the moment in terms of safeguarding what they promised in terms of joining the China-Pakistan economic corridor. The fact that China wants to expand the corridor to Afghanistan as well, this has already started. And this depends on good relations between Pakistan and Afghanistan. The fact that China is building uh, railways in the northern neighbors of Pakistan, and some of these railways involve Pakistan, like the railway from Pakistan to Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, 
very, very important. So the, the Pakistani government, whatever that is, even run by gangsters, they have to honor our, all these commitments. And especially from the point of view of uh, the liaison between Xinjiang in Western China and Gwadar in the Arabian Sea, this for China is a matter of national security. So this will imply that the Karakoram Highway will continue to be upgraded, just like they upgraded the northern part. They will upgrade the, the, the southern part as well, all the way to Islamabad. And of course, like what Michael referred in the beginning, building that famous pipeline from Xinjiang to Gwadar port in the Arabian Ocean. So the, for, for the Chinese, this is absolutely essential. They will do it even if it takes 10 years. They have the technology to do it. They have the time to do it. They have the financing. But they need a stable government, which is something that you can never ask for in Pakistan. Unfortunately, I love Pakistan. I worked in Pakistan on and off for many years. I have a, an emotional attachment to the country, but we all know uh, it, it, it's a basket case. It, it, it's an, an ungovernable entity, right? And with all the clashes of the many nationalities inside the fact that the baluchis uh, if they're not respected they will continue to harass chinese engineers and chinese envoys in baluchistan and all that and there's nothing that islamabad can do about it so so this is something that next month maybe we can have a much better idea of how the chinese are going to manage their absolutely intractable ally especially considering that uh, the usual suspects are absolutely dying to cut off the, uh, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which is the flagship project of uh, Belt and Road. Yeah, sure. Uh, Michael, did you want to add something? Well, I think you've uh, uh, pointed to Pakistan correctly as the line of the future. Uh, 50 years ago, I sat in on Defense Department meetings saying that Baluchistan was going to be the where they break up the whole uh, India opposition. This was the Herman Khan had uh, a whole presentation on Baluchistan is uh, uh, the uh, the area that uh, is the, the most prone to be broken up. Uh, regarding the, the big points that we've made, uh, the problem is really going to be the the Belt and Road uh, is going to uh, somebody's going to have to pay for it, and it's going to be mainly China. What are the recipient countries? Uh, how are they going to handle the economic liability for it? Uh, if they're going to, uh, their governments are going to own it, they will have to be running up a debt in one way or another to China. Otherwise, China will say, well, we'll build the roads, but then we're going to get, we're going to be repaid by the uh, tariffs on the uh, traffic uh, along the road. Uh, all of this, will, the, the idea of uh, the Belt and Road is to, raise the prosperity of the regions that it goes through. That's what railroads do. They raise mm -hmm. the value of property all along the railroad line. They raise the value of uh, the countries that the railroads and uh, the transportation goes through. So the countries that are the recipients of the Belt and Road will get richer. The problem is how do you bridge the, uh, the liability that they take today, what they owe for this investment, and what... Uh, uh, how they will repay uh, in the long-term future. Maybe it will be uh, an equity debt relationship. Maybe it will be an option for them to then, uh, uh, once they get well uh, rich enough, to repay China on some terms. 
Will this entail interest rates? Oh, how will how will the how will the BRICS intra BRICS debts differ from the kind of debts that the United States imposed on third world countries uh, uh, in the past? How do they avoid the kind of neoliberal uh, debt imperialism that the West has done and use that to actually uh, finance uh, uh, positive capital formation, positive direct investment? Uh, without impoverishing countries, and especially without impoverishing labor, and turning it into the class war that uh, the IMF and the World Bank and the U.S. economic philosophy and all of the Nobel Prizes that say this is how you get rich, impoverish labor and squeeze more out, how do you get an alternative to uh, what the Western countries call economics? Those are absolutely really big questions, and probably, Michael, we should have a program on that uh you know exactly all of our programs are on that but no seriously on the specific question of debt uh, yeah. and debt to third world countries i think this is really quite an interesting point so so we should definitely have that and maybe pepe will have you back when when you've gone Thank you've done your loop but uh, let me just end by saying that you know we began by starting about talking about summits and the uh, un summit is ongoing and you know a lot of the commentary around the current un summit where only i think one well only president biden out of the permanent five members is actually attending the uh, un general assembly meeting and, and 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 so on so in this context you know people are saying has the united nations become irrelevant is it that you know all these other uh, 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 institutions are being created, uh, you know, BRICS and, and G20 and blah, blah, and so on. Maybe they are more relevant. And I guess the way to, to answer that question is that the United Nations itself was a product of a very critical moment in the history of imperialism, where imperialism had, you know, just suffered a, a, a huge crisis, two world wars, the Great Depression, uh, you know, decolonize, impending decolonization, and very importantly, it was the crisis was only resolved thanks to the critical aid of the Soviet Union and Chinese forces. So, in that sense, I think it was a, it, it it was formed the on the principles of equal sovereignty, non-interference, non-aggression, all of these. And of course, since that time, the United States has wished to essentially backtrack on this. It has done a great deal to undermine the United Nations. Uh, the rest of the world have been asking for a reform of the United Nations in a variety of ways and the various institutions, the World Bank, the IMF and so on. But it is the refusal of the United States that is rendering these uh, institutions irrelevant, if anything. And unfortunately, other countries will have to build some kind of alternatives. So as long as the US and US-led drive to continue the life zombie life of imperialism continues this will remain the case we hope of course that this this will not be for very long and uh, hopefully the forces that we are talking about the forces of china the brics and uh, the rest of the world the world majority will soon prevail so maybe on that note we can uh, draw our discussion to a close so thanks very much again for joining us pepe we'll have you back soon and no uh, pleasure thank you yeah and michael and i will see you all in a couple of weeks, definitely. Fantastic. So thank you thank and you. bye bye. bye.